Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three new movies for you, actually two brand new ones that came out the week of January 31st through February 4th, or excuse me, yeah, February 4th, 2022. I almost said 2021 there. I'm still in that uh, early month malaise where I'm saying, where I'm tempted to say 2021, but yep, the week of January 31st through February 4th, 2022. And the first movie I'm going to start out with is Jackass Forever. What you, what can we say about Jackass Forever that hasn't already been said? Well, it's just these guys, the, the same people who were on the MTV show, pulling really immature pranks that put themselves in a lot of pain. Yep, that's the review, folks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that really is all there is to say about Jackass Forever. And it seems like if you've seen the Jackass movies, if you've seen one clip of a Jackass film, you've basically seen all the films. It's just, it doesn't follow a, a certain story. It's just one uh, pratfall after another. So truth be told, I have seen the first uh, Jackass movie from... 2002. This was the movie that came out after MTV canceled uh, Jackass. And it was really a show that wasn't particularly meant to last, but the Jackass crew, to their credit, made it last with movie after movie. So they came out with Jackass the movie in 2002, which I saw and thought was funny. There was Jackass number two in 2006. There was Jackass 3D in 2010, back when 3D was an expensive gimmick. And it's still a gimmick now, but 3D isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. And a lot of times, if I'm given the choice to to see a movie in 3D versus not 3D, I just don't take it. But that's another story. There was also Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa in 2013. And of course, there's the 2022 film Jackass Forever, which was actually supposed to be released in 2020, but we all know why that didn't happen. And there are still actually movie posters that say Jackass Forever is scheduled to be released in theaters on uh, October 22nd, but it got it kept getting delayed and delayed, which is kind of odd because Jackass Forever seems like a very simple movie to make. You don't need very much of a lighting crew. All you need is a camera and some really... Um, let's say brave and stupid people who straddle the line between brevity and stupidity, just willing to do some outrageous things to themselves and their bodies that no sane person would honestly do. The plot summary of this, according to one website that I'm looking at, it says after 11 years, that was the time when Jackass 3D came out, the Jackass crew is back for their final crusade. I don't know if there this will be their final crusade. Somehow I doubt it, but you know, you have Johnny Knoxville who's of course the ringleader who takes part in some stunts here. He's 50 years old. This year he'll be 51, and I don't know how long he will keep this up, but I would imagine that 
Steve-O, Chris Pontius, Jason Weeman, Acuna, and other um, pratfallers in this jackass gang will be at it for quite some time. So I, I guess I could tell you the, the the people who are in this movie who have been in jackass for the longest time. There's, of course, Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O, as I mentioned, Chris Pontius, Ryan Dunn, David England, Jason Weeman Acuna, uh, Aaron McGinney, and Preston Lacey. In addition to those people, there are also some other uh, willing participants, such as Sean Poopies McKinnery, McKinnerney, excuse me, um, Jasper Dolphin, Zach Holmes, Eric Menaka, Compton, Dark Shark, Wilson, and one female member of the group, Rachel Wolfson. And truth be told, Rachel Wolfson is in some of these gags, but not all of them. Uh, she's only in about two of them. There's one where I got to give her credit for her brevity. In th- there's one segment where she's given what's called scorpion Botox. And what she does is she sits in a chair while somebody else puts a scorpion on her face and the scorpion actually stings her in various parts of the face, depending on when the scorpion actually feels like doing it. But the really outrageous stunts are probably left here to the veterans. In fact, one of the main draws of the jackass films, which make them worth seeing over the show, in my opinion, is that they really go very far with the R rating. As a matter of fact, when I went in to see this movie in the theaters, and I actually found through my research that I could have seen this film on Paramount Plus if I wanted to, but it is somewhat of an experience seeing in the theater. But anyway, when I went to show my ticket to the ticket taker, the ticket taker actually asked for my ID, and this is the first time I've ever been carded to see Jackass, which makes me kind of wonder why... Um, why they have to ask for ID these days, because back when they started to ask for, ask for ID for movies, when the rating system first came out, going to the movie theaters was the only way you could see some of the outrageous things you could see in movies that were rated R and rated X. Now, anybody of any age can look this stuff up with an internet search. And I'm not saying that Jackass Forever is not worth being in the theaters for that reason. What I'm saying is I don't think ratings really matter in the age of the internet anymore, but I was just very surprised that I was carded to see this film. But fortunately I'm 39 years old. I have the ID to prove it. I also thought I would have had the gray hairs to prove it too, but no matter. But what else can I say about this film in general? I laughed a lot during the film. And I also was kind of amazed, even though I've seen the first Jackass film, I've seen the episodes on MTV when they were brand new. And when, when Jackass premiered on MTV in, um, October of 2000, back when MTV was actually worth watching, it was an instant hit. And even though I didn't see it during its first couple of months. I heard about it after all I was in high school. I I think, yeah, not hearing about jackass was practically unheard of. It was unavoidable whether or not you approved of what they were doing or not. But I think actually jackass forever could have benefited from 
emphasizing how much these original Jackass members, especially Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O, how old they are. Granted, they don't look very old, but Johnny Knoxville, as I said, is 50. Steve-O is in his late 40s. And there are certain stunts that they pull which involve battery to their genitals. And <laughs> it's it's quite amazing. I wanted to actually know more about their personal lives because with as many shots to the testicles as they're uh, as they take on camera, it's a wonder, do they actually have any children? Because given how many shots in the nuts they've had, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't have any children. But I actually learned through research that Johnny Knoxville does actually have two children. And I'm kind of amazed, especially considering the pain he goes through. So Johnny Knoxville is the ipso facto host of Jackass in this film and, of course, on TV. But he only takes part in two stunts. But these two stunts in which he takes part look like they really hurt. The first one is where he creates a marching band and they intentionally step on a treadmill that's going at least 15 miles an hour. So when they hit the ground, first of all, they hit concrete. And secondly, especially with instruments in their hand, it looks like they, they really got hurt. And the, the after effect shows that unlike the Looney Tunes, yeah, they actually did get hurt and they did actually bleed. But I thought there was a missed opportunity with the second stunt in which Johnny Knoxville takes part, namely where Johnny Knoxville steps into a bull ring and this bull that comes out charging pummels Johnny Knoxville even harder than the first time he did the stunt in the early aughts. And Johnny Knoxville is laying there on the ground. He actually is unconscious and he's taken away in a hospital uh, stretcher by ambulance. And when he gets out of the hospital, he has a broken arm, a broken rib cage and a concussion. Given the way that the bull pummeled him, he's lucky he didn't get killed. He's even luckier that he didn't get paralyzed. And Kind of the same with Steve Irwin. I sort of have the feeling that if I hear about one of these guys like Johnny Knoxville, Steve or all the rest, if they die, it's probably not of natural causes. That would be the most ironic thing of all. But the missed opportunity I'm talking about here is I wanted to see Johnny Knoxville actually visit the hospital and actually have the doctors speak to him about what happened because I know that Johnny Knoxville is famous and he certainly is a household name, but I would imagine that any doctor of any age would tell him, you cannot do this anymore. If you do, you're going to get killed or you're going to get paralyzed. And I'm not sure, you know, what's worse to, to some of these people who take part in these stunts. But I do think that there are some stunts here that are funny I would probably say the the bull charging Johnny Knoxville was not funny, but I was actually concerned for Johnny Knoxville. However, I do actually think some of the stunts that the jackass crew actually do to their own genitalia was outrageous. There's an there's a stunt where Steve-O puts a queen bee on his penis, 
which means that all the bees in a, in a bee farm start to swarm his general area. <laughs> Steve-O is crazy enough to pull this off, but what was even more outrageous was another stunt where a guy literally puts the shaft of his penis in a vice and his penis is flattened by this vice. And to make it funny, and admittedly it was funny, uh, Johnny Knoxville tied a rubber band with a ball on the end and made it like a, a rubber uh, paddle, a, a paddle ball. But uh, taking your penis out of that vice could not be good for that guy. And as I was watching his penis literally be flattened, I was thinking to myself, my God, why would you do that to yourself? Is getting a laugh or getting any sort of amount of money worth it? I don't know, but these jackass guys are willing to do it. Whether or not it's going to cost them their ability to have children or even, you know, their feeling from the neck down or their lives, I guess that's their prerogative. But I do have to give them credit for keeping at it well into their 40s. So Jackass Forever is exactly the movie that I anticipated that it would be, and it gets my rating of a checkout. It None of this, even though the, the formula for the Jackass movies is not story-driven, that's okay. In fact, there's one um, Jackass participant named Eric Andre who was in a film last year that was called Bad Trip, which was heralded as, you know, from one of the uh, Jackass members. And I I didn't think Bad Trip was very good. It was kind of like a candid camera type of film. And I didn't think the stunts were very strong. They seemed cartoonish and building a story in between all these stunts just to get a reaction out of people who don't know at first that they're on camera. It seemed very cheap, but Jackass Forever did not seem cheap to me, but it sure as hell is not a great film. It's just something that I found hilarious for what it was. So that's what I'm going with for Jackass Forever. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Redeeming Love. This is a movie that was released in theaters on January 21st, 2022, but I did not get the chance to see it until just this past week. It is a Christian Western romance film directed by DJ Caruso, and DJ Caruso also took part in the screenplay, and this is actually based on a best-selling book of the same name. DJ Caruso has had extensive experience uh, directing films. He directed uh, the triple X film, The Return of Xander Cage, which starred Vin Diesel, which I think was a modest box office hit, but I don't, I didn't actually see it. But it is kind of interesting, especially after seeing him direct such films as Disturbia, I Am Number 4, Standing Up, the aforementioned Triple uh, X film, for him to direct a Christian film. 
But yeah, Redeeming Love is a film that I expected to be based on a Nicholas Sparks novel, and it certainly looks like a Nicholas Sparks type of story. The woman who actually wrote Redeeming Love is Francine Rivers. I should say the person, because it's not Nicholas Sparks, obviously, because I said a woman wrote the story, but... The poster for Redeeming Love looks exactly like the poster for other movies that are based on Nicholas Sparks' books. Specifically, it shows a man holding a woman in his arms and sort of propping her up, which is the exact same poster for at least four other movies based on Nicholas Sparks' novels. So is this like a Nicholas Sparks um, story? Yeah, kind of. I do actually think that the the movie is good in the sense that it gets into some historical uh, drama here. And it takes place in 1850s California where the gold rush is going on. And it focuses on a young woman whose name is Sarah, but who's known popularly in this cinematic universe as Angel. And she was sold into prostitution at the age of eight. Now, I do think that actually a movie about children who are being sold into prostitution, like Pretty Baby, for example, does make for a a, a good story, albeit a very controversial one. And there's no way that an eight-year-old would be hired to be in such a film given child labor laws and for good reason. But anyway, when we meet Angel, or at least the first time, she's in her late teens or early 20s, and she is the most popular prostitute in this California gold mining town. She's so popular, in fact, that her um, her brothel mother, who's played by Famke Jansen, is um, actually... Uh, granting the men of the town uh, a lottery system to be with her. But she meets uh, a young uh, farmer by the name of Michael Hosea. And let me just get you some of these uh, uh, plot um, with these cast members. Angel is played by Abigail Cohen and Michael Hosea is played by Tom Lewis. And Michael Hosea is a young farmer who also happens to be magnanimous because he falls in love with Angel at first sight. And the tagline of this film says, when Angel meets Michael, she discovers there is no brokenness that love cannot heal, which makes me roll my eyes instantly. And apparently God tells Michael to marry this woman, to which he obeys. Yeah, yeah, th- this gets hokey automatically, but a- as you might expect, this Mary Magdalene type of story shows that this command from God proves to be more of a challenge to him than he bargained for. So, Redeeming Love is a movie that is, I, I think, it- it's not one of those films that hammers you over the head with the Christian message, but it also doesn't really invite very intriguing characters. So you see Abigail and Michael get married, and then they move on to his farm, and eventually Michael's brother-in-law, Paul, who's played by Logan Marshall Green, knows all about 
Angel's corrupt past as a prostitute and threatens to use it against Angel unless she does sexual favors for him. But where the movie really goes wrong, and yes, of course, those characters go wrong too, but when the movie really goes wrong is when Angel begins to leave the farm on various um, occasions and sometimes finds her way back into the seedy world of prostitution again. But what makes this film lopsided is, first of all, there really is no definition to Angel's character other than the fact that she's exceptionally pretty. And she's exceptionally pretty because the movie tells you that she is. I think she's decent looking, but I I don't quite know. I didn't quite find her attractive myself, but that's not the problem I have with this film. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I get that. And she is certainly, (laughs) without sounding like a male chauvinist, she's not too sore in the eyes, but she's kind of bland, and the character of Michael is especially bland. He it's one thing to be magnanimous. It's another thing to really struggle with the idea of your wife being lured or maybe even forced back into the world of prostitution. It also makes kind of snidely whiplash cartoon characters out of the men who are running this brothel in this Southern California gold mining town, especially one whose name is Duke, who's played by Eric Dane, who is very much like Snidely Whiplash in that there's no definition to his character, and he also has the mustache to boot. So much so that I thought that when he captured Angel and sold her back into prostitution, she would have, he would eventually tie her to a railroad track. So Redeeming Love is not only lacking characters that are truly defined, it is also very boring. I actually found myself nodding off a couple of times during this film, and with a running time of 2 hours and 14 minutes, it's not a running time that justifies the story that's being told. So, Redeeming Love is a mix is is a miss for me. I did actually think the acting was decent, but the characters weren't pr- particularly well defined, and I wasn't really getting into the story of redemption here because You would think that a story about redemption would involve finding God, but it just seems like the character Angel just goes back to her religious husband when when she gets into trouble, and she leaves when she gets bored. And that's really not a good relationship, whether you believe in God or not. So Redeeming Love gets my rating of a flunk out. It's a film that looks very good, certainly has very good-looking people in it, but the characterization isn't there, and it makes me wonder if the book is all that much better. I am curious to read the book to see if it actually justifies being made into a movie, but from the way the movie turned out, it probably doesn't.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Tinder Swindler. This is a documentary that is a true crime documentary that premiered on February 2nd exclusively on Netflix. It is about a fraud man who attracts women using the popular dating app and tricked them out of millions of dollars. It is directed by Felicity Morris, and the only person who is credited in this um, documentary is Christopher Kumar, who is an investigative journalist. And it actually kind of is a disadvantage for me because I would not be able to tell you the actual um, names of some of the people in this film, but maybe it's for the best. But there are uh, three women in this film, all of whom were tricked by the same person that they swiped right on when they were on Tinder. And the movie is called The Tinder Swindler because the women met this person on the popular dating app, but they could have met him on other dating apps too, like Match, OkCupid, you name it. But Tinder is the one that seems to be the most popular amongst Generation Z today. But it also goes to show you, like many other stories about con artists that go way before the invention of the internet, if somebody seems too good to be true, chances are that they are. And the fact that this movie is called The Tinder Swindler knows, gives you the idea right when these women are talking about how great this guy seems to be and how he claims to be the son of a wealthy billionaire diamond magnet that not all is what it seems to be. And especially in this age of the internet and people who are faking their Facebook profiles, better known as catfishing, it it goes to show you that seeing is not necessarily believing. But what really makes this guy particularly shady is he meets these women in person And he meets them on his luxury jet. He's staying at private five-star hotels. And the women can actually see that this guy is a big spender. But does he have the money to back that up? Well, as it turns out, he's already kind of proven or shown to them that he's not just a guy who talks the talk without walking the walk. But a little while later, that's when things get a little strange when he begins to text them asking for money that he promises to pay back. And these women do not come from wealth, and they actually take out loans to help him pay for what he says are temporary expenses. But as the movie goes on, you realize that he's paying for this facade, these private jets these five-star hotels using other people's money. He's literally paying is robbing Peter to pay Paul only he's robbing women. So it's more like, uh, robbing the, (laughs) I can't think of a female name for Peter, but, (laughs) but you know what I'm getting at? And it does this movie end with 
the guy seeking or getting the justice that he deserves, or rather the women getting the justice from this guy being captured that they deserve. Well, I'm not going to tell you entirely, but one thing I will say is that it will get you angry. And this movie does deal with the topic of women who are putting themselves out there bravely, I might add, and telling investigative journalists that this person conned me and this is the way they're doing it. And the internet comments that people leave anonymously calling these women freeloaders, gold diggers, is really not deserved, but it goes to show you that when you're swindled by one person, it's not only that one person hurting you, it's also less than informed people who don't have the strong opinion or who don't have the facts but have opinions to which they're entitled, but unfortunately, they'll let you know exactly what those opinions are. And words can hurt, especially when they're written down. But I was really taken in by the the Tinder swindler. I, I did admit that I was a bit bored during the, the first part of it because I do know the story about how people exaggerate their dating profiles sometimes to a fault. But once that the story started to get into how this guy began to convince his victims with meeting them in person and actually showing them his perceived luxuries, that's when it started to get a a lot more interesting. And the ending of the film has a really good epilogue that will get you angry because, well, without spoiling very much, justice was not entirely served. But the fact that they made a two-hour documentary about this guy that can be seen in millions, if not billions of households all around the world shows that the victims here have the last word. And the guy who conned them is not going to last very much longer. And I wanted to pound this guy when I just saw his jet-setting lifestyle. It really annoys me some of the people who do this, who exaggerate how well they're they're doing in life. I have a Facebook uh, profile. I have a Twitter page also, but I do that to promote my show. But I really, really try... Not, when good things happen to me, sometimes I brag a little about uh, about her online, but I never, ever mean to deceive. But I know plenty of people, not necessarily con artists, but people who do exaggerate how well they're doing in life, and it really annoys me that they would stoop to that low. But also, conning people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, literally, if not millions, that just makes me angrier. But the Tinder swindler is going to get a reaction out of people. And while the beginning was what I expected it to be, I did think the story really did catch up when you sort of realize this is not your average internet con artist. So for that reason, the Tinder swindler gets my rating of a marginal knockout. I did feel for the women who did get swindled. I do think that they did the right thing by reaching out to investigative journalists who are really the heroes of this film for, for getting this guy and putting him in his proper place if justice did not exactly hypothetically serve him. But I'm not going to tell you what the consequences of his actions were once he was apprehended. 
You're going to have to see it for yourself, but I do think, especially for a Netflix documentary, this one is well worth watching, but expect to be angry by the end. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters on or before February 11th, 2022. The first movie that is probably going to be the biggest hit of next week is Death on the Nile. This is not the uh, first film that is based on the novel written by Agatha Christie, which was written in 1937, but it is a follow-up to Murder on the Orient Express, which was directed by Kenneth Branagh and starred Branagh as the Belgian detective Poirot. And here he is actually on a cruise on the Nile. Let me give you a more specific in, in, um, a synopsis of this um, movie. While on vacation on the Nile, Belgian detective Hercule Poirot must investigate the murder of a young heiress. And this movie, just like Murder on the Orient Express, has an all-star cast. Kenneth Branagh, of course, stars in the film as well as directs it, although you probably wouldn't know based on the poster alone that Kenneth Branagh is even in this movie, let alone that he's the star, because there's one bigger star that is front and center, and that is Gal Gadot, who plays Lynette Ridgway Doyle, who is uh, somebody who is also vacationing on the Nile. And the list I'm given here of cast members is telling me the names as well as their relations to the other people on the boat. So I'm not going to bore you with that yet. And maybe when I do my review next week, I'm not going to exactly get into the characters and what relations they are to whomever. But this does have an all-star cast. Includes Tom Bateman, Annette Benning, Russell Brand, who we haven't seen in a while, Ali Fazal, Don French, Gal Gadot, as I mentioned, Army Hammer, Rose Leslie, Emma... Uh, Mackey, Sophia Okinado, who is uh, from the Black Panther film and who's uh, who is great in that film, by the way. So it's great to see her in other films as well. Uh, Jennifer Saunders, Letitia Wright and Anne Turkle. And that is the primary cast. And this was set to be released. Excuse me. It was set to be released earlier, but of course it was delayed several times due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And 
there were also sexual abuse allegations against Army Hammer. The original release date of this film was supposed to be December 20th, 2020. It was actually wise that they delayed this film as much as they did, but man, over a year and releasing it in February, I don't know, but this actually does put it at an advantage of being the first big film of 2022. So Death on the Nile is a film that I will see and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The other big movie that is subject to be released in theaters on February 11th is Blacklight. This stars Liam Neeson as Travis Block, who is a government operative coming to terms with his shadowy past. When he discovers a plot targeting U.S. citizens, Block finds himself in the crosshairs of the FBI director he once helped protect. Blacklight sounds a lot like a story that would be written by Tom Clancy, but it was ac- it's actually an original story that's written by uh, Brandon Rivas, who wrote the story. Nick May, who wrote the screenplay, and Mark Williams, the director, who contributed to both. I don't know if this is a film that I will be seeing for you, but I'll give it my best shot. It's Liam Neeson, it seems, playing his usual tough guy role that he's been playing for the last 15 years. So Liam Neeson is a little less like Kenneth Branagh, like he was in the 90s and the early aughts, and a little bit more like Charles Bronson, but... It seems to be working very well from Liam Neeson, and some of his tough guy roles I've liked. Some of them have been kind of forgettable and thrown away, but I don't know. I'm going to give Blacklight a chance. If I see it next week, I will review it for you. The next movie that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called Catwoman Hunted. This has gotten a lot less press than the movie The Batman, which is coming out later this month. And I will give a synopsis for it next week on my What's Coming Up Next segment. But this one is probably capitalizing upon the release of that The Batman film, which does feature Catwoman in it as well. And I'll explain that more next week. But this movie, which is animated, follows Catwoman in an attempt to steal a priceless jewel. This puts her squarely in the crosshairs of both a powerful consortium of villains Interpol, and Batwoman. Not Batman, Batwoman. So the voices of the in this film include Stephanie Beatriz, Lauren Cohen, Kelly Hugh, and Jonathan Banks. Will I see this movie? I will see it if it's in a theater near me, but I don't know if it will be. But I'll give it my best shot and I'll let you know what I think. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called Marry Me. Now, Marry Me is a film that I think is also going to be released on streaming, but don't take my word for that. It's a movie about a music superstar whose name is Kat Valdez, who's played by Jennifer Lopez, and she's getting married to another music superstar named Bastion before a global audience of fans. But when Kat learns seconds before her vows that Bastion has been unfaithful, she decides to marry Charlie, who's played by Owen Wilson who is a stranger in the crowd instead. This movie sounds incredibly predictable. It sounds almost kind of like Notting Hill, although on Notting Hill, Julia Roberts' character was playing an actress. I don't think she was in a committed relationship where she was getting married, but she was also marrying a layman who was played by Hugh Grant. So this sounds like an adaptation of 
Notting Hill. And, of course, Jennifer Lopez is right now the queen of romantic comedies and probably will be as long as she looks the way she does in her 50s. Marry Me is a film that I may see, and I'll let you know what I think on um, next week's show if I do see it. Another movie that is subject to released in theaters is a film that's called What About Love? Although, strangely, this may be a mistake on the site's... um, that I'm reading, but it says it's a 2023 film, which would be nearly impossible now. But this is a movie that stars Sharon Stone, Andy Garcia, Rosabelle Lorente Sellers, and Marielle Jaffe. Uh, Sharon Stone is one of those actresses who is still acting, but is not the A-lister that she used to be. That, that, that doesn't mean that she's not a good actress, but she is starring kind of like Dennis Quaid and John Travolta in lower-key films than she was starring in 20 to 30 years ago. But What About Love is about two young lovers, so not Sharon Stone and Andy Garcia, sorry, who changed the lives of their parents forever when the parents learn from the joyful experience of their kids and allow themselves to again find their love. This is a romantic drama, not a romantic comedy, although it would actually make a good premise for a romantic comedy, albeit a predictable one. But What About Love is a film that I might see, but I don't know if I actually will. But I'll, I'll let you know if I do. And there is another animated film that looks to be a foreign film, or at least a British film, and it's called The Amazing Maurice. Now, this actually looks like a more interesting film than the animated Catwoman film, but again, I'll I'll take my chances on this one. I hope this one is coming out in a theater near me. This one um, is a story that follows Maurice, a streetwise cat who has the perfect money-making scam. A cat's a con artist, okay. He finds a dumb-looking kid who plays a pipe and has his very own horde of rats who are strangely literate. I don't know how you'd exactly make a con out of that because a a kid who plays a pipe and has a horde of rats who can read, that sounds like a legitimate money-making option as it is. But I'm very interested to see the amazing Maurice. I hope it's coming out in a theater near me. If it doesn't, then... Well, I'm kind of out of luck, but I hope it does. If it does, I will make it a priority to see it, and I will review it for you on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've given you a spoken word preview of the movies that are subject to be released in theaters for February 11th or before, now I'm going to give you a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released on streaming for the week of February 7th through February 11th, 2022. And let me start with Netflix. There is a film that is subject to be released on Netflix on 
Tuesday, February 8th. It is a film that comes out of Japan, and it is called Child of Kil- uh, Kalm... This is... Okay, let me start over. It's called Child of Kamiari Month. I don't know what Kamiari Month is. As you can tell, I, I kind of tripped over that word when I said it, but it is probably a Japanese word. Um, and I'm looking up, I, I do know that, oh, me and my misprint, my misprints. It is an anime film and anime films are kind of a dime a dozen. It seems, but with that said, some anime films like the movie bell that I reviewed last week has some stellar animation, but I might give this one a chance. This is the story of a 12 year old girl whose name is Kana, who is born as a descendant of the gods. I guess Japan is polytheistic, but I don't know very much about Japanese religion. Her family has a mission to deliver offerings from all over Japan to the gods gathering in Izumo. Although Kana's mother was to complete the mission, her passing prompted Kana to finish the task. And there's more. Uh, hoping she could reunite with her dead mother in the God's land at the end of her journey. This sounds like a pretty intriguing film, and it does actually kind of sound like Belle in the sense that it deals with an adolescent who's coming of age and who also deals with uh, supernatural beings who dictate her life. I'm not going to write this off as just a typical anime film, and I do credit anime writers, directors, even the people who draw each and every frame for being outside of the Hollywood system, because you could say that the Hollywood system has seven basic plots, but Japan probably has 21 and many that are not familiar to Western audiences. So I might give this movie a chance. I probably won't, um, I may or may not see it for next week's show, but I'll give it a chance. Another film that is premiering that's on Netflix, which is also a Netflix original, is one that's called The Privilege. And this is a Spanish film. And I don't quite know exactly what it's about, but I know it is... Um, here it is. It is a film that is from Spain. And it is about a wealthy teen and his friends attending an elite private school who undercover a dark conspiracy while looking into a series of strange supernatural events. Sounds like a decent premise. I don't know if I'd go out of my way to see this movie, but if you want to see it, it's going to be premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, February 9th. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters on, excuse me, subject to be released on Netflix on Thursday, February 10th is a movie that's called Into the Wind. It is a foreign film. I don't exactly know what country, but I'm looking it up right now. And there it is. I love how this internet is uh, being fast for me. Let me actually tell you the country of origin. The director is Christopher Roos, who is Swedish. So I presume this is a Swedish film. So this movie is about a woman who graduates from a prestigious high school in Warsaw and entered medicine in London. He uh, uh, also about a guy who works as a kite surfing instructor at the seaside 
thanks to which he combines earning money and passion. They will meet in hell. And hell is spelled H-E-L, which I assume is a, a, a city in Sweden. And the unusual charm of the boy makes the girl exceed her limits and enter a completely unknown world of kite surfing, music, and fun. The feeling that arises between them does not please her family or his friends. Is Anya and Mikau's relationship strong enough to overcome adversities and become more than just a holiday love? As I was reading the premise here, I was thinking to myself, just a small town girl living in a lonely world. But that's all I'm going to sing because I do not want to uh, pay Journey any royalties. But it does sound like that. It, it sounds like a, a rich girl, a poor boy, maybe even vice versa, and their families being at odds with one another. But maybe it's more than that. But the movie is called Into the Wind. It's a windsurfing movie that's mixed in with a love story. And I actually do have to give it credit for its originality. But I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but I'll let you know what I think on uh, next week's show if I do see it. So there are five films that are premiering on Netflix on February 11th. The only American film is a movie that's called Tall Girl 2. And I did review Tall Girl back in 2020. And it was a decent film, but it deals with a girl in high school who is six foot one and is treated like a freak because of how tall she is. And six foot one is taller than average for anyone, let alone a woman. And she is played by an actual tall girl who's, who's a model uh, who started when she was a kid. Her name is Ava Michelle, who I do think is very attractive and rest assured if she attended my high school, I would want to date her, but apparently she's treated like a, a freak in her high school because of her height. But as her character, Jody Craman gains popularity, her miscommunications start causing rifts with those around her. And now she really needs to stand tall. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, the original tall girl was a romantic comedy, a bit predictable. And it also was in my opinion, not a great film based on the idea that a relatively attractive, uh, woman who's around the six foot tall range wouldn't, I don't think be considered freakish the same way that she was considered in this film. And it also didn't seem like there would, it seems like, especially going to a school that she does in this film, an an urban school in new Orleans, there would be guys who would be taller than her. It wouldn't be just one guy who's her love interest. But again, I thought it was a decent film. I'll see this film. This is one I probably will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. So let's see what other streaming services have films that are going to be on, uh, that are going to be new for the week of February 7th through February 11th. And truth be told, Disney plus doesn't have any, they've, they've premiered a couple of, uh, films this week, like never been kissed, torn and snow dogs, but those have been released a long time ago. 
on on the week of February 11th, Disney Plus doesn't have any original films. It has a few original series like The Book of Boba Fett. The finale is going to be aired on that day. And they also have Marvel Studios Assembled, The Making of Hawkeye, another popular MCU film. So, or rather series. But let me see what HBO Max has for my... Listen, uh, for my listening audience who is also moviegoers, I presume. And if you're not, welcome to the club. So on Thursday, February 10th, there is a Max original that's coming out, and it's called Just Call Out My Name. This is a documentary, Just Call Out My Name. It might be about victims of violence, who knows. But it also is the name of or it's actually part of the lyrics of a popular song by James Taylor, You've Got a Friend. And actually, this documentary is about Carol King and James Taylor, who were together on the Troubadour reunion tour, which was back in 2010. Why it took so long for this documentary to come out, I don't exactly know. But it is on HBO Max on Thursday, February 10th. So check it out for yourself if you would like. Another film that is subject to be released on HBO Max as an HBO Max original is a film that stars Zoe Kravitz, and it's called Kimi, K-I-M-I. And this is a film that is directed by Steven Soderbergh and also co-stars Erica Christensen and Rita Wilson. It is about an agoraphobic Seattle tech worker who uncovers evidence of a crime. And Zoe Kravitz is, I think, making her uh, debut as an action star in this film. And good for her for getting uh, some uh, some range in her acting pursuits. She has been in action films before. Most notably, she was in uh, the Mad Max, uh, the, the most recent Mad Max film with Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy amongst other people, but here she is front and center as the action star. And I, I'm beginning to like Zoe Kravitz more and more as I see her in, um, more and more films. So Kimi is a film that I will see. I'm I'm going to make it a point to see that. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. As for Friday, February 11th, there are no max originals, that are going to be premiering on HBO Max. But there is a film that is called Antlers that will be appearing on um, HBO Max. And this is a relatively new film. It premiered in theaters in April of 2021. It is produced by Guillermo del Toro and directed by Scott Cooper. And it stars Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons. And it takes place in an isolated Oregon town where a middle school teacher and her sheriff brother become embroiled with her enigmatic student whose dark secrets lead to terrifying encounters with an ancestral creature. This is a film I did not actually see in theaters, but I remember it being advertised. And I got to say that I don't, um, I don't think I'll, I'll miss this film. I, I think I'll, I might give it a chance while taking into consideration that it is not a brand new film, but it certainly looks like an intriguing one from the posters. And given that Guillermo del Toro is behind the scenes on it, albeit not as a director, but still as a producer, 
he has really good taste in horror films or at least supernatural films. So I might give this one a chance and I might see it for you next week, but I'm not going to guarantee it. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.